Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We are glad you're joining us again. Or if it's your first time, thanks for checking us out. Yes, welcome. It's that time of year again, when hearts and chocolates and cupids collide. If you are a longtime listener, you know that Valentine's Day also means that Buried Motives is going to cover a case involving a couple in some sort of way. It's the only way to celebrate true love. Yep. (laughs) Buried Motive style, anyway. Exactly. There's always a dirtbag thrown in the mix somewhere. Before I get started, though, listeners, Melissa and I have a special Valentine's Day gift for you this year. We told you last year that we would be your Valentine, and the offer holds true. We are super excited to announce that we will be bringing you a very cool collaboration as a bonus episode for you on Valentine's Day, February 14th. Be sure to check it out. We are super excited to work with these wonderful podcasters. We really are. This means that next week on Wednesday, you will get the bonus episode. And then the very next day on Thursday, you will get our regular episode. So two episodes in one week. We love you listeners. We do. That's why we do it. (laughs) We got together with six other talented podcasts and created a Broken Hearts collaboration. We chose seven of us in total to represent each year of the infamous seven-year itch in a relationship. All seven of us will be sharing an overview of a case involving a couple or love gone wrong. This will give you the chance to check out some of our podcast friends as well as get extra content from us. We are excited about it and hope you will enjoy it. It's our way of showing how much we appreciate each one of you. And as a little shameless plug, if you want to show your love to us, we would love it if you made sure to hit that little follow button on whatever platform you listen to us on and give us a rating and a review. That would be awesome. And you could also show your friends how much you love them by telling them about us. Because sharing is caring. (laughs) (laughs) And Valentine's Day is supposed to be about love and caring. But is this case really about loving and caring? Well, this case did not have a happy ending by any means. The case I'm going to bring you today involves a couple who were shot in Boston in 1989. This case took the Boston area by storm and shone a light on more issues than just true crime. I'm going to start with a 911 call. At 8.43 p.m. on the evening of October 23, 1989, a man placed a chilling call to 911 from his car phone. When the operator answered, he exclaimed, quote, My wife's been shot. I've been shot. He tells the dispatcher that he doesn't know where he is. He said that a man made them drive to an abandoned area. I read the 12-page transcript of the call. The operator tried his best to figure out where this man was calling from. He managed to find out that he is driving a blue Toyota Cressida. The man says they were coming from Tremont, Brigham and Women's Hospital. He alludes that they had been carjacked and the perpetrator shot at them before taking off. He says that he ducked but was still shot. He said that his wife was shot in the head. The dispatcher asks the man if his wife is still breathing. He tells him that she is gurgling. The man is driving while he is talking to the dispatcher. He says he feels like he's going to pass out. The dispatcher tells him to pull over and see if he can see any signs or buildings or find someone to talk to to try and figure out where he is. 
The man manages to tell him that they are on Tremont Street, but he isn't able to narrow down exactly where, and unfortunately, it is a long stretch of road. He tells the dispatcher that he is quote-unquote blanking out, and that he can't hear his wife gurgling anymore. He is becoming more groggy sounding as the call goes on. The dispatcher later said that he could tell he was losing a lot of blood. Eventually, the man stopped responding. You can hear the dispatcher talking in the background trying to figure out where the caller is. He says he can still hear the caller breathing. The sergeant was on the call listening in, and a third man was on call with the Boston police. The dispatcher continues to repeat the man's name and reassures him that help is on the way. He honestly did such an amazing job on this call. He was able to assist using the sound of sirens in the background to help police and ambulance figure out where the man and his wife were located. It's astonishing. That's crazy. This part is super cool. So the dispatcher figures out using sirens that he's hearing and his knowledge of where people have been dispatched to in the city? With the help of the Boston police, yes. The dispatcher noticed that he could hear a siren in the background of the call. This meant that a patrol car had happened to be close to where the caller was. And had his sirens on. Yes. Thinking quickly on their feet, Boston police had all patrol cars in the sector turn off their sirens. And then one by one, turn it back on. If they could no longer hear the siren, they knew that that patrol car was not the one they heard in the direct vicinity. Oh, that is clever. Right? How long did it take them to do that? It was just four or five tests in when the closest car turned back on its siren and they heard it through the car phone. They knew where the car was. And it is just so smart to me. That is brilliant thinking on your feet. Right? And just what are the chances that he would happen to hear that siren? I just thought that was a really neat aspect of this case. I always find it so incredible what dispatchers can pick up on. Right. Yeah, I don't think we give dispatchers enough credit. And this next part is also unbelievable. Remarkably, a film crew just so happened to be riding along with Boston Emergency Medical Services that night and were with the crew who came upon this man and his wife. No way. The crew were from the show Rescue 911. I don't know if any of you remember it, but I sure remember watching it. It's a CBS reality TV series. They just caught it all on camera? They did. This case is episode 120 if you do want to go back and watch it. I watched it on YouTube and it was so wild to not only read about what happened, but to visually see it unfold. It's not a recreation. It is live footage. That is crazy. I've never had that happen when researching a case before. Medical responders rushed to both sides of the vehicle simultaneously and began taking the man and the woman out of the sedan. The woman was slumped over and in cardiac arrest. They immediately set her on the ground and begin to perform chest compressions. The man was put on a stretcher, and as he is being loaded into an ambulance, you can hear him plead with them to take care of his wife. As they are securing him inside the ambulance, an officer asks him if he saw who did this. He responds by saying it was a black man in a black running suit with red stripes on it. Okay, so he hadn't passed out in the car, like the dispatcher thought? He had come back too but there was a long time where he was unresponsive. Oh, okay. When the responders took the woman out of the car, they quickly discovered that she was very pregnant. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. They figured that they had about 10 minutes to get her to the hospital to save her unborn baby's life. The couple were taken to two different hospitals. The husband was taken to Boston City, and the wife was taken to Brigham and Women's. She was in critical condition, and they were close to Brigham and Women's Hospital because the couple had just been there for a childbirth class. 
They were on their way home from the class when this happened. This is awful. It really is. The camera crew followed the man to the hospital. What? I think because hers was so dire. Oh, okay. Yeah. You can see doctors working on him and getting him ready to take up to surgery to deal with his life-threatening gunshot wounds. Where was he shot? In the stomach. He is moaning in pain, but still asking about his wife. Doctors have to tell him multiple times that his wife went to a different hospital so they can't update him. He is then whisked away to surgery. So who is this couple who had been brutally shot and were now fighting for their lives? This husband and wife were 29-year-old Charles and 30-year-old Carol Stewart. Charles Michael Stewart was born on December 18, 1959 in Boston, Massachusetts to Charles Michael Stewart Sr. and Dorothy Stewart. Having the same name as his father, everyone called Charles Chuck, so that is how I will refer to him. That being said, I did catch myself sometimes typing Charles instead of Chuck when preparing my notes, so if I throw in a Charles every once in a while, oops, I tried. (laughs) It might happen, it might not. Chuck was an altar boy growing up and had dreams of owning and running his own restaurant. His personality was a little quiet and reserved. Charles Sr. was a member of the U.S. Army and served in the Second World War. He was a Tech 5, which meant he had special technical skills. Dorothy, Chuck's mother, was a telephone operator for Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center of Boston for over three decades. Together, Charles Sr. and Dorothy had six children, two daughters and four sons, one of which was Chuck. Dorothy was said to be a devoted mother. Carol was born Carol Ann DeMady on March 26, 1959 in Medford, Massachusetts. I apologize if I said her maiden name incorrectly. I could not find a pronunciation for it. Her parents were Evelyn and Gusto DeMady. Gusto was a second-generation Italian-American and worked as a pizza dough maker. The family was close-knit. Even as an adult, Carol was said to idolize her father and would talk to her mother on the phone every single day. I know that Carol for sure had an older brother, but she may have had more siblings. I just couldn't find any more listed. It was said that she was devoted to her family. She was described as a bright light, and rarely if ever in a bad mood. She was outgoing and had a bubbly personality. The couple met at work in 1980. They both worked at the Driftwood restaurant in Revere. Chuck had worked his way up from being a dishwasher to a bartender and finally a chef. So he worked his way through the ranks. He did. He was a hard worker. Carol had been hired as a server at the same restaurant. Carol was petite with brown hair, and Chuck was tall, dark, and handsome. They met, and their love story began. Allegedly, at first, Carol's parents didn't seem too fond of the man their daughter had chosen to date, but after seeing how happy their daughter was with him, they warmed up to the idea. A friend of Carol's from Suffolk University Law School in Boston said about the couple, quote, He was quiet and she always had something to say. So it was like Carol was the spotlight and no one paid attention to him. You got the impression he was her solid rock. When she got her engagement ring, she was on cloud nine. It just sounds so sweet. It really was. This friend said that Chuck would pick up Carol every night from school faithfully. Chuck continued down his path of success. But so did Carol. She became a lawyer and specialized in tax law. She was currently working for a publishing company. At the time of the shooting, Chuck was the general manager of an expensive fur shop in downtown Boston. I think it was called Edward Kakis and Sons on Newberry Street. But he was still pursuing his dream of opening a restaurant someday. He was just getting paid a lot of coin to work here. As much as his wife? He was making over $100,000 in 1989. Wow. Yeah. What was he doing? 
He was the general manager of this expensive, bougie fur shop. When furs were still in? I guess so. (laughs) So they were doing quite well for themselves. Yeah, not bad for a young couple. Yeah, 29 and 30. That's a pretty good start. Mm -hmm. The couple were wed in 1985. By 1989, they had been together nearly a decade and had enjoyed the life they had built together. They could afford nice things, including a fancy car phone. (laughs) They were not that common yet in 1989. They worked in the yard together, and Chuck began coaching Little League Baseball. Did they have kids? Not yet. This was their first one that she was pregnant with? Yes. Oh. But obviously Chuck loved kids, if he's coaching Little League. Yeah, they were a picture-perfect couple. From the outside looking in, everyone just had good things to say about them. They said they would shovel their neighbor's walks. People said that Carol had taken a girl where she worked from, like a teenager, and had kind of taken her under her wing, taught her how to put on makeup, was just like so kind. So sweet. Mm -hmm. The couple decided to move to the nicer neighborhood of Reading, a suburb of Boston. By all accounts, it looked like Chuck and Carol Stewart were living a charmed life. Carol was seven months pregnant with their first child. As I mentioned, on October 23, 1989, they had been at Brigham and Women's Hospital for a childbirth class. The class was filled with excitement and anticipation. No one could have predicted the horrible shooting that would occur just shortly after saying goodbye to their fellow classmates. Going back to that frightful evening, Chuck's abdominal wounds were extensive. The doctor who performed his surgery gives an account on Rescue 911. He said that the bullet entered on a diagonal, causing damage along the way. It was unclear, but I believe he was shot twice, only one of them going straight through. To name just a few of his injuries, Chuck's liver had been damaged, as well as his urological tract, bowels, and major blood vessels. He also had to have his gallbladder removed as a result of the shooting. His initial surgery took six hours, but was a successful one. Despite having to have more surgeries, Chuck was expected to make a full recovery. Meanwhile, across town, the same could not be said for Chuck's wife, Carol. At 2.50 a.m. on October 24th, Carol sadly died from the damaging gunshot injury to her head. Their baby boy was delivered by C-section prior to her death. He was born nine weeks premature, and medical staff were worried about him. He had endured trauma and was oxygen-deprived from the shooting. He was given the name Christopher William and was baptized in the intensive care unit at the hospital. Carol's funeral was held on October 28th five days after the shooting. It was held at St. James Church in Medford. Chuck was still in the hospital recovering from his injuries and couldn't attend. That would have been horrific for him. So bad. However, he did write a letter to be read for him. The letter expressed his love for his wife. Part of it read, quote, I will never again know the feeling of your hand in mine, but I will always feel you. I miss you and I love you. He also expressed that they should forgive the shooter. He said, quote, For us to truly believe, we must know that God's will was done, and that there was some right in this meanest of acts. In our souls, we must forgive this sinner, because he would too. He alluded that Carol was too good for this world, and that is why she was called home, to be spared from the evils that abounded. He said, quote, Good night, sweet wife, my love. God has called you to his hands. Wow. That's a remarkable stance to take. Because I think at that time, you would still be so angry, especially... Well, not only losing your wife and your child is hanging on by a thread, but he's still having to deal with all of his own medical issues. I think there'd still be a lot of anger. I think I would still be angry at that point in time. Oh, I would be. 
some people never get over that anger. Like it's wonderful if you can, but some people just don't. Mm -hmm. And no one can blame them for it. No. And I don't know if he was saying that as a way to try to comfort everybody since he couldn't be there. No, I don't know, Christy. Just because we do a martyr podcast, I'm thinking, eh, it's a little suspicious. But then he's got such extensive injuries himself that who shoots themselves in the gut? That's dangerous. Exactly. And that's a super painful gunshot wound. Yeah. Like if you're trying to make yourself look innocent, that's not where I would shoot myself. No. In the shoulder or something like that, not in the gut. Yeah, the leg. It seems like they'll shoot themselves yeah. in the leg or something. Yeah, the shoulder where you know you're not going to be hurt too badly. Not the gut. No, I've heard it's one of the most painful gunshot wounds. Oh, so then it can't be him, but... It was just a surprising fact of the case because I was surprised to hear that too. Maybe that's just how big of a person he is. Around 800 people attended Carol's funeral. Among the guests were Governors Michael Dukakis and Flynn. On November 9th, Chuck left his hospital room to kiss his son goodbye. Baby Christopher died 17 days after the shooting. His funeral was held on November 20th. Again, Chuck was in too bad of condition to attend the funeral. This shooting in Mission Hill was now deemed a double homicide. Chuck wasn't released from the hospital until December 5th, six weeks after the attack. So his injuries were extensive. Very. They were definitely life-threatening. Hmm. When Chuck was able, he gave police more information about the man who shot them and the awful night he and his wife were attacked. He told them that while on their way home from the birthing class, they stopped at a traffic light. Chuck said a black male approached their vehicle with a gun. He forced his way into their car and told Chuck to drive. He gave them directions to a nearby community called Mission Hill. The man told Chuck to pull over in a secluded area and then robbed the couple of their valuables. Before fleeing, the perp shot Chuck in the stomach and then Carol in the back of the head. Wait, the perp told him where to drive to in Mission Hill? Mm Mm-hmm. So how did he not know where he was? Because he had taken him to a secluded area that he was not familiar with. But why couldn't he just repeat the directions that the person had given him? Well, because he had probably just been shot in the gut and was fighting for his life. Okay. But that's a good question, Melissa. I was able to find the police report of Chuck's description of the man who killed his wife. When describing the man, Chuck said he was wearing a black baseball hat and black Adidas zip-up tracksuit that had two to three red stripes going down the side, a dark-colored shirt underneath, and driving gloves that had his knuckles exposed. He also said that he had a raspy voice. The man appeared between the ages of 28 and 34, was about 5 foot 10, 150 to 160 pounds, was thin with a bony structured jaw, a short black afro, and shaggy or blotchy facial hair. He remembered him very well. He did. 28 to 34? Who gives that age description? I know. That's so weird. That's what I thought, too. But I guess he's meaning late 20s, early 30s. Okay. if he said it that way, it wouldn't sound weird, but 28 to 34 does. I agree. It sounds so weird. It does. He described the gun as a silver snub-nosed revolver. Chuck couldn't remember which way the guy ran off, but he was able to muster the strength to speed away and call 911. Police were impressed with Chuck's composure and ability to give such a great description right from the start of their investigation. Unfortunately, shootings and carjackings were not unusual events to be taking place in Mission Hill in 1989. Authorities admitted that at this time, there was a crime and a crack epidemic. Race becomes a big part of this case. At the time, Mission Hill was largely a Black and Latino community. The Stewarts were a young white couple with a baby on the way. Oh, you can see how this would just take off in the media. 
Oh, it absolutely did. It has a huge effect on Boston and still does to this day. In the same way that it was uncanny that a TV crew happened to come upon the crime scene when it happened, a late shift reporter at the Boston Herald also was immediately at the scene. He was a young reporter and heard about the 911 call on his police scanner. He realized that he was super close to where the car was found. He got as close as he could and then ran out with his camera in hand. Not really looking at what was happening, he just started taking pictures. He was so focused on the technicalities of taking the photographs that he didn't really realize what he was capturing. After he turned in the film, he discovered that he had gotten a perfect shot from the front of the car with both Chuck and Carol shot and suffering inside. Seven months pregnant Carol was slumped over on her husband and blood was everywhere. That would have been such an eerie photograph. It really is. This gruesome photo made the front page. No way. They published it? They did. I can't even believe it. Oh. It showed a white couple shot down in a predominantly black neighborhood. The editor of the Globe saw the photo the next morning and said he knew that nothing was ever going to be the same. And it really wasn't. The public felt so much anguish, sympathy, and outrage on Chuck's behalf. He was a hero who had tried to drive his family to safety after being shot himself and almost losing his life. He had lost his wife and newborn child in the most brutal of ways. Police felt the pressure to solve this case as swiftly as possible. Is it going to lead to bad police work? Yeah, it's going to, unfortunately. We usually do not focus on race when presenting a case, but this case shone light on how things were handled by the police force in Boston at this time. It has sparked much conversation and debate regarding how the Black and Latino communities were being treated, which I have to say was pretty awful. To put this into perspective, Boston had only just gotten rid of segregated schools in 1974, just 15 years prior to the shooting, which had spurred an increase of violence between races. It was pretty horrible. The children were now all going to school together, and the parents were acting horrifically about it. And really, just because they are calling it an unsegregated school in most places, there was still segregation happening within the school. Yeah, so they were just kind of in their infancy still of trying to build that integrated community. To top it all off, a black man had also been murdered on the same night as Carol and Christopher's shooting, but his death had not made the headlines. Oh, there was no big front page splash of his murder scene? No, and there was no huge drive to find out what happened to him. So that added fuel to the fire between the Black community and the Boston police force. Because at that time, the Boston police force did not have very many Black officers. It was predominantly white. Oh, you can see how this is just going to explode. Mm-hmm. There is a nine-part podcast called Murder in Boston, put out by HBO and the Boston Globe, that goes into more detail on the whole racial history and includes testimonies of members of the community at that time that had to deal with the manhunt for Carol and Christopher's killer. I'll go into it a little bit, but if you want a deeper dig, I suggest you check out that podcast. It was really well done. And side note, the Boston Globe was such a fantastic resource for me for this case. I paid the American $1 for a trial subscription, and it was the best $1.35 Canadian that I spent all year. I texted Melissa right away and was like, hey, if you do a Boston case, I have a subscription for the Boston Globe. Good job, Christy. (laughs) And I say that because a lot of my information came from the Boston Globe. Additionally, they have an eight-part series on the website regarding this case, 
that also goes into more detail about the racial tensions going on. It just tells you how big of a deal it was. It really was. And the Boston Globe was very informative. Initially, this seems like a pretty simple case, but it really isn't when you look at all the information that they have compiled. I believe they spent two years doing their research. Wow. So shout out to them. These types of things are not a comfortable subject per se, but an important one to have in cases like this. There was also a docuseries released on HBO about this case in December of last year. I didn't have access to watch it, but listeners, if you did, let us know what you thought of it. Needless to say, with racial tensions already at a high, Chuck's account of what happened only added fuel to the fire. Police were dead set on finding their dirt bag, and they wanted to find him quickly. This is totally understandable, but what isn't understandable is the tactics that they used to try and find him. Members of the Mission Hill and surrounding communities tell of how traumatic the manhunt was for them. Police were stopping any male black person they came across. It became so intense that police would stop a man in the street based on the color of his skin and perform a strip search right then and there. What? They did. That is so unethical. Extremely unethical. On that podcast, it tells of a young black teenager who was made to drop his pants in the middle of the street to be searched. No way. Yes. Oh, that is maddening. It really is. And he was a teenager. The subject they were looking for was described as being in his late 20s or early 30s. This boy was only 13 or 14 years old. That doesn't even make sense. Nope. They just saw the color of his skin and like, Kate, let's check him out. Oh, my goodness. The grown boy described this event. He said that there was a girl in the street that he had a crush on at the time when he was stopped by the police. He was mortified and didn't want to drop his pants in front of her. He was told that he would be taken to the station if he didn't comply. So the boy did as he was told, and his crush watched. She laughed, and he was heartbroken. Another man described his experience. He was 11 at the time and remembered hearing pounding at the door of their apartment. He said police entered screaming about a description of a suspect. This man said that the police grabbed his cousin and slammed him into the table. They cuffed him and hauled him off. This was an extremely traumatic event for this 11-year-old boy. Oh, it would be. He didn't even know that there had been a murder or that police were looking for a black man at the time. And this is all in the days following the murder? Yes. He said his family was just sitting there playing cards and all of a sudden there was this loud banging and police just stormed the room and used brutality to handcuff his cousin. And how did police even narrow down which areas of the city they were searching? Chuck didn't even know where he was. Well, it was in the Mission Hill area. Okay. So this is where they really focused. When this boy's family bailed out his cousin and brought him back home, this boy distinctly remembered his mother calling the police an explicit name and then saying, quote, they back at it again. The cousin was cleared within 24 hours like nothing ever happened. But obviously this was a routine thing that happened to them. Yes, I would gather that by what his mother said. And this man said that even to this day, he has a fear of the police He makes sure that he always has a dash cam going in his car if anything like this were to ever happen to him. No kidding. No wonder there's so much distrust. Yes. This was deplorable what was happening. Understandably, the Black communities reported that they did not feel safe. It seemed like they were all guilty until proven innocent. This fear and police brutality overflowed into the Latino community as well. Many Latino men were made to also empty their pockets, provide identification, and be strip-searched right there on the street. Police would deny this type of behavior. 
but there are a plethora of accounts similar to the ones I briefly shared, so I do believe it was happening. It is noted that at the time of the Stewart shootings, hate crimes began to rise in the Boston area. The dirtbag in this case had single-handedly initiated a ripple effect of hate and violence in the community. One resident described it as, quote-unquote, open season on black people. The Suffolk County District Attorney was calling for the death penalty to be reinstated over this case, and the mayor ordered 100 extra police officers to search black neighborhoods. I did not want to take away from the murder of Carol and her baby, but I felt like this was too important to just skip over, and quite honestly, I could have filled another episode just talking about it. As I mentioned, police were feeling the pressure and were quick on the draw to haul in anyone matching Chuck's description of the gunman. They made multiple false arrests. It was a lot. Which is surprising because he gave such a specific description. Right. And I won't go over all of the false arrests, but it was said that when arrested, these men were not treated with dignity. A man named Alan Swanson had been picked up for the double homicide. Police knew he had committed a B&E and found a black tracksuit soaking in his sink, but it didn't have the same color stripe. While being held in jail, allegedly the officers would walk by Alan's cell and repeatedly bang on the door so he couldn't sleep at night, and blatantly spat in his food so he wouldn't eat. Again, this is alleged. But believable. Oh, 100% believable. Police believe that they finally had their man when they arrested known criminal William, or Willie Bennett, for the murders of Carol and Christopher Stewart. Willie was a 39-year-old black man from Roxbury with a hefty criminal record. So he's a dirtbag. Yes, he was well-known by the police. He was picked up by the police on an unrelated motor vehicle violation charge. This gave them reason to hold him while they built a case against him. When placed in a lineup, Chuck identified Willie as the man who had brutally murdered his wife and son. Media ran with this story and people believed the police had found the right dirtbag, because this man did match that description. Well, and Chuck had identified him, so it makes sense. Yeah. Police received Willie's name as a tip, and they ran with it. He was already a known perp, and he matched the description. Willie's mother's home was searched, and a bullet was found that matched the caliber of the gun during the murders. On November 13th, Willie was charged for robbing a video store weeks prior, and it was on December 28th that Chuck positively ID'd him. So they're holding him on other charges. Mm -hmm. It looked like it was going to be an open and shut case against Willie. That was until one person came forward and turned this case upside down. The identity of the actual dirtbag murderer would later be referred to as a quote-unquote open secret. What the heck is an open secret? Well, the reason they called it an open secret is because at least... 33 people knew who killed Carol and her son, but it took until January 3rd, 1990 for one of those 33 people to come forward and tell police what he knew. What? This person was Chuck's brother, Matthew. What? Yes. 33 people. A minimum of 33 people knew. And nobody said anything until Matthew, Chuck's brother, finally came forward on January 3rd. It's his own brother? His brother. What? Did he hate his brother? No. Well, they had been on an outs for a while, but they had reconciled at this point. This is crazy. It really is. This whole case is wild. 33 people knew and they let this manhunt go on. Yes. 33. 33. A minimum of 33. These aren't 33 people standing in the streets watching it happen. These are people that knew it was going to happen before or knew about it afterwards. Knew about it afterwards. Only two people 
were tipped off that it could have happened before. That is shocking. Isn't it? Oh, those, there's 33 dirt bags. There is 33 dirt bags. I just can't even imagine with all of this going on in such a horrific crime to not come forward, not say something. That innocent baby and they didn't say anything. Right. Well, technically two people did actually. We'll get into that. But police didn't believe them. Because they were so tunnel visioned. Exactly. And there was reason to kind of not believe them too. I am going to go into it. Okay. His brother. His brother, Matthew. What the heck has his brother got to do with all this? His brother has more to do with it than you just might think. (gasps) Is he the baby's father? No, he's not. (laughs) Okay. That's good, because I thought Carol was stand up. (laughs) Carol was. Carol was a good person. She was beautiful. She's a beautiful being. But I'm laughing because I had similar reactions to you as I was researching (laughs) this case and finding all of these things out. I was like, what? Did I read that right? Double check it with another source. I'm like, yeah, I read it right. Okay, what does his brother have to do with this? Why would his brother shoot him and his wife? Well, I'm going to get into all of it. But before I do, I just wanted to add in a little side note about Carol's brother. He would later say that knowing that 33 people knew that Chuck had something to do with his sister's murder and stayed quiet. Wait, Chuck had something to do with his sister's murder? Yeah, it was Chuck. Chuck's a dirtbag? Chuck. It was Chuck who orchestrated this whole thing. No way. Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought he was sketchy. You were a little suspicious, and you were on the right track. But Carol's brother did say that knowing that all these people knew about it and didn't say anything was one of the hardest things for him to get over the case. Yeah, no kidding. 33 dirtbags. 33. And it would just have kind of diminished the perceived value of her life, I would think, knowing that all these people knew and didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. It's astounding. Yeah, I agree with him. Mm -hmm. Perhaps better later than never, on January 2nd, Matthew and some of their siblings that he had told met with Chuck's lawyer prior to Matthew going to the police to give the lawyer a heads up as to what was about to happen. Oh, so they were courteous enough about that aspect, but not about coming forward way sooner? Right. But now they are going to come forward. And so Matthew has obviously told some of the other siblings and they go to Chuck's lawyer to say, hey, just as a heads up, we're going to the police. We're turning them in. That same night, more of their family members, which included Chuck's parents, are told that Chuck possibly killed Carol. So it was on this night that the parents found out. And he shot himself? Yes, it is perceived that he shot himself. The next day, Matthew walked into the Boston Police Department on the evening of January 3rd and told police that the story his brother told of a carjacking was a hoax. He proceeded to spill all the beans. A little too late. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go through some of the things that he told, as well as a timeline of what happened. Okay. Weeks prior to killing his wife, in August and September, Chuck approached one of his brothers, as well as his best friend from high school, David Frank McLean, and told them that he wanted Carol dead. Why? Well, reportedly, Chuck was upset about the pregnancy. He didn't want kids after all? He was coaching Little League! I know, but he didn't want to be a father yet. He enjoyed their lavish lifestyle and didn't want a baby to get in the way of them achieving their goals. What? He also did not want Carol to take time off from work and disrupt their family finances, even though his wage was plenty to support them with alone. This is complete selfishness. Total selfishness. And Carol was excited. She wanted to be able to stay home with their baby and she knew that they could afford to do so. Chuck told his wife that she had to get an abortion. 
Carol refused. She wanted their baby. This refusal caused Chuck to feel like Carol had the upper hand in their relationship, and he was not about to accept that. And he got angry with her about that? Mm -hmm. He didn't like that she got the final say because the baby was growing inside of her. I wonder if he was angry when they were actually able to save his son with a C-section. I don't know what went through his mind. I wouldn't doubt it. Oh. Because then he's probably thinking, oh, great, now I have to take care of the baby and I don't have Carol there to do it for me. Just such a dirtbag. That is despicable. It is. Both men dismissed Chuck and said that they were not going to help him kill his wife. I'm not sure if they thought he was just joking, because at the time, neither man alerted the police. Was this like a common conversation they had amongst brothers? Like, this is weird. It is. But I don't know how the conversation totally played out. If he was just like, oh, I just want her gone. Or if he actually was like, can you help me kill her? Okay. I don't know the extent. In the middle of October, the same month as the shooting, Chuck did manage to convince his brother to attempt to pull off an insurance scam with him. The plan was to stage a robbery in the Stewart's home so Chuck could make a claim. This plan was kiboshed, however, when Carol unexpectedly returned home. Oh, this is going to just fuel his anger against her even more. Mm -hmm. Apparently his brother was there to do it. And they were talking about it while she's there and the brother's complaining that she's home. And he's like, well, I need her for my alibi. And it just got so messed up so that the brother had to leave. This is crazy. It is. Since the first attempt failed, the day before the murder on October 22nd, Chuck drives his brother to Mission Hill and shows him where to wait for him on a deserted road the following night. The plan was that Chuck would meet him there with some of Carol's jewelry. Matthew would hide the jewels and Chuck would make the insurance claim. He would then give his brother a cut of the insurance payout. So they were just going to rob. Right. The next night, Matthew was ready and waiting for his brother at the intended meeting spot. Chuck showed up, tossed him Carol's filled Gucci bag, and then sped off. When Matthew got home, he looked in the bag and found a surprise. Along with Carol's jewels, that included her diamond engagement ring and other valuables, Chuck had placed a gun inside the bag. It didn't take long for Matthew to hear about the shooting. Not knowing what to do, Matthew reached out to one of his friends, Jack McMahon. Together, the pair decided to take out the diamond ring and then throw the rest of the items, including the gun, into the nearby Pines River. Okay, so he met up with his brother after the shooting. Yes. He thought he was just taking the jewels and had to hide them, that they were going to make a false claim. And did Matthew know like, did he not look into the car and know that they had both been shot when he got thrown the bag? He drove by and threw it out to him. It would have been dark. He didn't see. Okay. When he got home, he discovered the gun. He hears about the shooting. He doesn't know what to do. So he calls his friend and together. The... They cover up a murder. Yeah, basically. Oh. The day after the shooting and the day that Carol died, Matthew, Chuck's brother, and Matthew's friend, Jack, began singing like canaries to it seemed like whoever would listen. Among the people whom they told that they believed Chuck murdered his wife was Matthew's girlfriend, Jack's father, Jack's father's girlfriend, Jack's brother and his girlfriend, and Jack's mother, Matthew and Chuck's uncle, and one of their other brothers. What? This is how it grows to 33 people. It's not like they told one person. They're telling a lot of people. And then those people are telling other people. Right. On October 26, three days after the shooting, Chuck had a life insurance payout delivered to him at the hospital. No way. While he was critically ill. Who does that? If you are fighting for your life, 
your wife was just murdered, and your son was struggling to live after being delivered prematurely. Is a life insurance payout really going to be on the top of your priority list? Well, you've got all those medical bills, Christy. And it's not even like, just give it to my mom. She'll hang on to it for me. It's bring it to the hospital. I need it here. And this did not seem suspicious to the police. Apparently not. That's crazy. His payout for this policy was $82,000. Today, that is closer to $200,000 US or $270,000 Canadian. But that wouldn't even have begun to cover his medical bills. Well, we find out later that it wasn't his only policy. Oh, okay. This was just the one that got paid out immediately. I'm still shocked he shot himself in the stomach. Me too. And he probably had insurance. He had a pretty good job. On October 28th, the same day as Carol's funeral, David Frank McLean's little brother, Michael, Dennis McLean, is told about how Carol actually died. He tells his friend, John Carlson, and the two men decided that they needed to tell the police. So these were the first two that were finally like, okay, what? Like, we got to tell the police. They decided to go to the state trooper who answered Chuck's 911 call instead and told him what they heard. They said they never heard back from him. So the police have this tidbit of information and then they watch Chuck get a hefty insurance payout at the hospital and they're still not putting it all together? I don't know if the police knew about the payout. I don't think they were even looking into Chuck. It didn't even cross their minds that the husband did it. Well, with his extensive injuries, I can see how that would distract them, but still. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure why that state trooper who answered the 911 call didn't get back to them, but they didn't, and then they just kind of let it go. They were like, oh, we did our part, Mm -hmm. washed their hands of it. But at least they tried. Yeah, I guess, a little bit. (laughs) 31 other people didn't. It's true. At this point, everyone is feeling horribly sad for Chuck. Plus, the doctor who operated on him said that there was no way he could have inflicted this type of wound on himself. On December 5th, the day he left the hospital, Chuck wrote out two checks to his brother Matthew, each for $500. Matthew used this money to purchase jewelry for his girlfriend. Chuck had agreed to pay him $5,000, so this would have just been an initial payment, I believe. The day after Matthew and some of his siblings spoke to Chuck's lawyer, the lawyer arranged a meeting with Chuck for that same day, January 3rd. They met around 7 o'clock p.m. It is unclear exactly what the two discussed, but by the end of the meeting, the lawyer was no longer Chuck's lawyer. Oh, good on him. He refused to represent him. I'm not sure if he quit or if he was fired. Mm. It was just said that by the end of the meeting, he was not the lawyer. He was probably so happy after the fact. Oh, yeah. Of not having to represent that dirtbag. For sure. That night, Chuck checked into a hotel room in Braintree. At 8.45 p.m. that same night, Matthew is interviewed by police. As proof of his story, Matthew handed over Carol's diamond ring because he had kept it. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure what made him take that ring out of the Gucci bag that night. If it was like just in case because he wasn't sure what to do. He was under duress at the time or... Was he planning to use it as evidence to prove if anything ever went wrong? Maybe, because he hadn't pawned it, and it had been months. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And when he walks into the police station and has Carol's diamond engagement ring, they're going to believe him. Mm-hmm. Next, throughout the night, police interviewed more people who allegedly knew that Chuck was the dirtbag they had been looking for all along. Knowing that his jig was up, at 7 o'clock the next morning on January 4th, Chuck drove his car to the Tobin Bridge in Chelsea. 
He left a note in his car and then jumped off of the bridge to be swallowed up by the Mystic River. No way. He committed suicide? He did. What a dirtbag. The note left on the passenger seat said that he loved his family and that the last few months had been hard. He said the allegations had taken his strength. What allegations? Up till this point, it's only the police that know. It hasn't hit the media. It hasn't done anything. What allegations is he dealing with? Well, he had met with his lawyer. He knows his jig is up. But he's wanting it to sound like, I just couldn't take this on too. So not admitting his guilt. And because of this, some people do believe that he was not guilty. What? Because he didn't say I'm sorry in his final letter. Well, and he's got a doctor saying that he couldn't have inflicted that wound. Right. After hours and hours of searching, police were able to retrieve Chuck's body from the icy cold water 30 feet below. His family watched on TV as his lifeless body was pulled from the water and placed on a boat. Miraculously, this was all caught on tape as well. You can still watch the footage on YouTube. That is crazy. Like, I watched them pull his dead body out and, like, shimmy it onto the boat. He's still wearing his white running shoes. Dorothy, Chuck's mother, was said to just stand and stare at the TV, likely in shock. She was watching them. Well, no kidding. I guess his parents have to believe that he did it because their other children are telling them that they did it. Right. But I can see that it would be almost like a... Like an out-of-body experience almost. Yeah. And you wouldn't want to believe that your son could do that. And then to have him die and cast doubt on the whole situation? Yeah. I think it might be easy to believe that he didn't do it. You would want to believe that your son did not do this. Yeah. And this all happened in a short time frame that the parents found out. And then the next thing they know, their son is being pulled out of the river. Carol's family was also shocked. Not once had they suspected their son-in-law of ending their daughter and grandson's lives. Carol's parents and brother had visited him in the hospital. They had him over for dinner. They cried and mourned with him. They had even prayed together, having no idea that they were comforting and being comforted by their daughter's dirtbag killer. Do you think he killed himself because he was remorseful? Is that the part he couldn't live with? I think he was just being such a coward and didn't want to face the consequences. Wow. How do you live with yourself, though, with that? Because he knew a black man, Willie Bennett, had been arrested and was likely going to get the death penalty. And he didn't care. He picked him out in a lineup. I wonder if that's what got to his brother and made his brother turn him in. Maybe. That's a good point. It could have been. But this just shows that nobody had any idea. There was no visual animosity between the couple. They thought that Chuck was a great husband for their daughter. And that he was excited about this new baby. They had just left from childbirthing classes. You would think if you're going to murder your pregnant wife, why even bother going to the class? To keep up appearances. Right. And that he did. He had fooled them all. Carol's father was so distraught that he collapsed and had to be rushed to the hospital. When the public first heard about Chuck's death, People assumed he had ended his life because his grief over losing his wife and son was just too great. So initially, people were even more empathetic for him. It didn't hit the headlines right away that he was the murderer? Not right away. It was just he'd been pulled out of the river. That's crazy that even that didn't hit the headlines first. Right. It would have been a huge scandal. But this was all happening at once. And so they just knew like, oh, he's been pulled out. Like a reporter wouldn't know yet. Just he's been pulled out of the river, and then it all kind of hit at once. Mm. It's hard to wrap my head around that news traveled slower then. Yes. (laughs) 
You couldn't just do a quick tweet. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it just shows how much the public was bamboozled by him. Because Mm -hmm. as soon as they heard that he was dead, it wasn't like, oh, he commits suicide over guilt. It was like, oh, he ended his life over the pain and grief that he was going through. Hmm. People involved in the case were also completely shocked when they learned that Chuck was now the number one suspect in his family's murders. It was expressed that this was the biggest mistake they had ever made. Many of them felt completely sickened by the news. A reporter from the Boston Herald has said about this case, quote, I consider it the biggest failure of my entire 27-year journalistic career. We failed the city of Boston, particularly the residents of Mission Hill. Was there apologies made? There were. Okay. Consequently, Willie Bennett was no longer a suspect in Carol's murder. However, I believe he still did 12 years of jail time for the burglary. Oh, wow. In 2017, Willie gave an interview and said that he was still angry over the finger being wrongfully pointed at him as the murderer. And he was bitter because he hadn't ever been compensated for what he had to go through. His nephew also has spoken out about the trauma this false arrest had on their family. Willie and his family say that this false accusation has followed and haunted them and their family name. After years in court, they were finally given a mere $12,500. They viewed it as an insult. The stress from this case was said to drive Willie's mother to an early grave. She allegedly spoke of the Stewart case in her final moments. Because a lot of people, even after all this information finally came to light, still believed that Willie was guilty. They didn't believe that Chuck could have done this to his wife. Hmm. Sadly, the last report I found about Willie is that he has dementia and is living alone in Boston. As for Matthew and his friend, they each were sentenced to three years behind bars for getting rid of the murder weapon. The items, including the 38 caliber revolver, were mostly retrieved out of the river where Matthew had told police they discarded them. I do want to point out that many people believe that Matthew had more to do with the murder than he admitted to. They thought he shot his brother? Some people think that. Doctors felt that it was highly unlikely that Chuck could have shot himself at the angle that he did. It was said that the bullet entered closer to his back and went upward through his liver and intestines. A lot of people think that perhaps Matthew was at the scene of the crime and shot his brother. Matthew's attorney paints a different picture. She protests that Matthew had been tricked into helping his brother cover up a murder. She said he was brave to come forward and was punished for it with jail time. I'm undecided on this. If he had been in on it from the start, why would he have told so many people and then went to the police just months later? If it wasn't Matthew, did Chuck have someone else help him? I kind of doubt that. If he did have someone else help, why was it his brother that he had written those checks out to and not to anyone else? Regardless, police have yet to find any real evidence to link Matthew to the actual murders. I think it played out the way Matthew said. I kind of tend to lean to that as well. In the Globe's research, they did reach out to an independent forensic consultant. And this consultant believed that it was in fact possible that Chuck could have shot himself but he also said he definitely could have been shot by someone else too. So it was inconclusive. No way, just playing it out here in our room? I think he totally could have shot himself. Oh, I think so too. It was a revolver, not a long shotgun. Exactly. Hold it upside down. It's already pointing up on an angle. Just hold it behind your back. And that explains why it did so much damage. Well, there might be another explanation for that as well. Because it is also believed that Chuck had meticulously planned where to shoot himself so he wouldn't sustain any major injury. But at the last moment before pulling the trigger, Carol grabbed at him, 
causing his position to move and creating critical damage. Oh, that makes so much more sense. Personally, I hope that is what happened so that she could have caused some suffering on him in the weeks to follow. Because she didn't die immediately. No, she was still alive when he was calling 911. Police admitted that they got it totally wrong, but also defended themselves by saying there was zero evidence that pointed towards Chuck at the time. I find that suspicious when two men had contacted the state trooper who took the 911 call to tell him what they heard. In retrospect, there were some red flags that were overlooked. It's easy to ignore evidence when you're tunnel visioned. Right. And you only want to see specific evidence. True. And some of this when you're not even thinking that it could be the husband because he almost died himself, you're not going to be looking for these red flags. But I'm going to go over a few of them. How was it that Chuck had absolutely no idea where he was when he called 911? He was only a few minutes away from the hospital, but spent 13 minutes speaking to the 911 dispatcher and couldn't figure out his location. During the call, he never once used his wife's name, nor did I hear him say it at the hospital in the Rescue 911 episode. He also was never heard speaking to her or trying to comfort her. Oh, that is suspicious. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like, hang on, baby, like, I'm going to get you help. It was just when they would ask about her, like, oh, she shot in the head. She's gurgling. She's not gurgling. My wife, my wife, my wife was how he referred to her. He also was never heard rolling down the window or opening the door when stopped to holler for help. Why was Carol shot in the head and Chuck only in the abdomen? Upon further digging, not only did Chuck immediately collect an $82,000 insurance policy, but he also had a second one being processed for $100,000 at the time of his suicide. Together, that totals $450 US dollars and almost $600,000 Canadian today. Also, it was reported that Chuck was having an affair with a 22-year-old co-worker and was heavily flirting with another. One report I read said that this alleged mistress even came to visit him in the hospital. What a lousy dirtbag. Viewed in retrospect, those are some big red flags. Totally. But one in and of itself doesn't necessarily scream that he was the murderer. Right. So in retrospect, the math ain't mathing. Exactly. I have no doubt that Chuck killed Carol and his unborn son because he was a selfish coward. I would like to believe that he acted alone and wasn't able to convince another human being to join him in his heinous acts, but that will likely never be 100% determined. If Matthew was more involved, he took that to his early grave. Carol's family felt like their daughter and sister was too wonderful to be remembered as the case that divided races in Boston. And this is really beautiful. A few weeks after the truth came out about Chuck, they created the Carol DeMatty Foundation. This foundation provides college scholarships to residents of Mission Hill, which again is a predominantly black neighborhood. As of 2016, they have given out more than $1.2 million to help 220 underprivileged youth obtain a better future. Oh, that is so sweet. Carol's father has said about the foundation, quote, Carol was a loving, caring person who always thought of the other person first. She loved to help those less fortunate than herself and was constantly trying to improve their place in this world. One of the first students to be awarded the scholarship was a young man named Chip. He said that Carol's mother hugged him so tight and had the biggest smile. He said, quote, she was proud to call us her kids. She was very proud that this scholarship fund was a way to have the wonderful legacy of her daughter and her grandson to live on. I think it is so wonderful that it was the family of the victims who extended the olive branch and tried to mend the relationship between races in their community. 
That is so sweet. Mm -hmm. One super cool thing that happened in regards to this memorial fund is that one of the recipients of this scholarship was given to Willie Bennett's daughter. What? Yes. The man who had been falsely accused of killing Carol. It is so touching that one parent of a tragedy could reach out and help the child of another involved on the opposite end of that tragedy. The DeMatti's attorney has stated that, quote, Carol would not want to be remembered as the victim of a sensational murder, but rather as a woman who left behind a legacy of healing and compassion. I have a few more updates before we end. Chuck's brother, Matthew, was said to have a hard time after everything took place. He struggled and eventually passed away in a shelter in Cambridge of an overdose. Oh, that is sad. Mm -hmm. So his brother inadvertently ruined his life as well. And his poor parents. Yeah. Both Carol and Christopher were buried at Holy Cross Cemetery in Malden, Massachusetts. The name on their grave is Carol's maiden name of Damati, not Stuart. That's fitting. A Harvard psychologist, Robert Coles, has described Chuck as, quote, an extreme example of psychopath, an antisocial personality with little sense of remorse, a propensity to lie, and often an ability to deceive others into believing his fantasies. In most psychopaths, there is a cruelty and callousness, but Stuart outdid that. This statement was proven by Chuck's actions. He murdered his pregnant wife and had no problem blaming it on a black man in Mission Hill when he knew the white communities, the press, and the police would believe him hook, line, and sinker. Just last year, in December of 2023, the mayor of Boston, Michelle Wu, issued an apology on behalf of the city for the impact that this case had on the black community of Mission Hill. As far as the media goes, there has been a movie and books written about this case. But what I found interesting was that in 1991, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch released a song called Wild Side that includes a synopsis of this case, along with other tragic cases that have taken place in Boston. In the song, he points out how horrible it was that Chuck murdered his pregnant wife and then blamed it on a black man. I don't think I've ever realized that about that song. I know. And I was a fan of Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. I had to go back and listen to it. I have to look up the lyrics now. Hopefully, racial tensions have continued to mend in the Boston and the Mission Hill area. And hopefully cases like this will also bring more awareness to just how rampant domestic violence against pregnant women is. We have talked about it in other episodes, but murder is the number one cause of death for a pregnant woman. Which is always so shocking when I hear that. It's horrific. And that is the messed up case of a dirtbag so cunning and manipulative that he bamboozled an entire city so severely that he was able to sit back and watch them turn on one another while the suspicion evaded him. The extreme dirtbag who murdered his wife and child, Charles Stewart. So crazy. Melissa's looking up the lyrics now to the Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch song. <laughs> but it's true. It starts out by saying that Charles had everything going for yeah. him. And he did. He was living a charmed life. He had a loving wife. He had money, a baby on the way. And it wasn't good enough for him. Christy, that case had me on the edge of my seat guessing what was going on. What a wild ride. It was. I was shocked at almost every turn while I was doing the researching. And again, go check out The Globe and Mail, that podcast. The docuseries, there's a lot more information about it than what we could share in the time that we had today. And we'll be back again with you next week when Melissa has another case. Until then, see ya. Bye.
We're going to test again to see if we're on the same page. We'll be on the same page. You just got to calm down a little bit. Yeah, it's been a day, you guys. It's been a day. It's been a month. It's a, a what? A month. A month. It's been a weir. <laughs> it's been a week, a month, a day. Oh, man. You name it, it's been it. <laughs> he is then whisked. He is then whisked. Whisked. He is then whisked. How come I can't say that? He's then taken away. Yeah. And you know what I laughed at? Is the son's names were Michael, Mark, Matthew, and then Chuck. Chuck. <laughs> but they're all M's and he's not. Just made me laugh. Ouch. Right? <laughs> Just Hi, random. I'm Charles. This is my brother, Michael, Mark, and Matthew. And what were the girls' names? Were they M's? No, they were totally different. Oh, okay. Yeah. Excuse me. Did you burp too? Or Earlier. was that your stomach? No, that oh, was. I thought I, maybe it was my stomach. It was burp at the same time. <laughs> like, none of that, that came from stomach. me, Christy. Oh, that was a double whammy. <laughs> Is he the father's baby? <laughs> is he the baby's father? <laughs> he is his father's baby. <laughs> is he the father's baby? At one point, yes. <laughs> you know what I mean, Chrissy. Oh, oh my goodness, you're so funny. <sighs> okay, so what am I saying? Do you need about a chocolate? No. What? Okay. See how easy I am. Clear your head with more chocolate. That is so sweet. You're making me cry by watching you. (laughs) Okay, now we're both crying. (laughs) But murder is the... You can't be clicking. Just wait. Just wait. (laughs) Hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.